Father, I do thank you today for the uh, creation of Chris Arnold and his redemption um, that you have put in his heart and affection and belief in Jesus Christ, giving him gifts of the Spirit that have fingerprinted the hearts of people in this church for really 18 years. And we're grateful for every staff member he's encouraged, every person uh, through Discovery Point, and every small group, every men's group. Oh Lord, every conversation, every counseling, every wedding, every funeral. Lord, every time you set up a baptistry or put out um, communion cups that we could celebrate you, Jesus. I just thank you, Lord, for the 10,000 ways that he's been a column upon which we have built this ministry. And so now we pray great blessing on his life, his family. Lord, that you would do even greater things, the greater things Jesus talked about in, in, in the book of John. Greater things uh, because you're going before him and with him. So, Lord, into your hands that we commit the Arnolds and ask for a, a double portion of the Spirit that these, this next season of his life, Lord, he would be shocked and amazed at the fruit that he can bear, um, the joy that he receives, and the experience with you uh, that he encounters. Oh, God, for all of us, Lord, that, that are standing on top of his shoulders, Lord, may we walk worthy of such a friend, and may we preach more boldly and love more deeply because of those who poured into our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In 1880, Robert Ingersoll, a leading atheist of his day, said, churches are dying all over America. In the 1966 Easter edition of Time Magazine, they just put a picture and a question on the front said, is God dead? And then in April of 2009, Newsweek, again on the occasion of Easter, didn't say God was dead, but did say this, the Christian God isn't dead, but he's less of a force in the United States than ever. I'm sure if they were to do that again this Easter, they would double down on that assessment. So what's happening in our culture? Is God less of a force than ever in our nation, in our culture? And the answer is absolutely not, but the appeal to Christianity has, is less than ever as people begin to navigate the cost of knowing Christ. It used to be fairly convenient to be a Christian. Nobody really cared about your convictions. Many years, vocal Christians and nominal Christians all sort of lived in what's called the mushy middle. Nobody really knew the difference between whether you were on fire for the Lord or sitting on the sidelines, but now the mushy middle is gone, and those who have sought to align their lives with a radical embrace of Christ find that their values are way different than the culture around them. If your words ever challenge this <laughs> ever-changing world in which we are living, that's a Paul McCartney line from Live or Let Die, if your words ever change this ever-changing world in which we're living, <clears throat> you will find yourself on the other end of rejection, you might be canceled, social media might block you, you might lose your job, or your book may be taken off of Amazon because it's 
dangerous. You may be labeled a bigot, a domestic terrorist. It's okay. Jesus was called the same things, a drunkard, demon-possessed, and a threat to national security for which he died. But I want to tell you that none of that ever decreased the Lord's zeal to testify to the truth and fulfill the Father's mission for his life. In fact, the hostility of culture increased the zeal of Jesus Christ. So here's what I want to say. Nothing that I'm going to say today is intended to sound whiny and as if we can't speak. In fact, all the more we speak in a hostile culture that's growing ever more hostile. So I'm not trying to say to speak less or that we, that the God, listen, no matter how hard the gospel uh, culture gets, the gospel is never decreased in its effectiveness and Christians are never called to speak less with the increasing hostility of culture. So no, the gospel has not lost its power, but it has lost its American convenience. The gospel is more precious than ever to those who are starting to realize the cost of it. Last week, we looked at the mission that God gave to Isaiah, to his hardened culture. Verse 9, Isaiah 6, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but they'll never understand. They'll be ever seeing, but they'll never perceive. Make the heart of this people calloused or hard. Make their ears dull, and they will end up closing their eyes. And so we noted last week, that's not an easy mission to embrace. Speak to a culture that's not going to listen. So last week when I said the amen to that message, I thought we all agreed that was the amen. It's just that God never said the amen. He never finished. So I worked all week on something else. And by Friday, it's, uh, I didn't say I was finished. So I begin working Friday on trying to listen to how we may follow up that message. And here's why we go back here. There are some topics in the Christian life that are so new or let's just say maybe that you're so entrenched in the old. It takes more than just one message to make an adjustment, to rattle your heart. If, I was, if you've never given money to a church and I was going to preach a message on uh, fi- uh, financial faithfulness, I bet I probably would not win your heart with one message. It'd be a series. So when we talk about being faithful in a hostile culture, probably not just one message from Isaiah 6 was going to do it. So I'm speaking today because I think that most of us who would say, I have to say for me, I've never been alive when my culture looks like this. There are people who are older than me that will testify to the same thing. have never quite seen this hardness to the gospel. So, there are lots of places we could go today, and actually we are going to go to lots of places. But the one place I want to begin with, sort of our, our baseline, is to look at the most faithful man who's ever followed Christ in preaching the gospel in a hard culture, and it would be the Apostle Paul. Now, the place that we're going to take up his story today He is in prison, in transition from one prison to another. He's in Caesarea, headed to Rome. But while he's in Caesarea, a king named Agrippa finds news about this evangelist so interesting, he wants to have a hearing. So Agrippa is listening, King Agrippa is listening to the Apostle Paul. 
That's who he's talking to in Acts 26, 9. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense. I just think it's a funny statement. Fortunate to stand before you, King Agrippa, whose great-grandfather tried to kill Jesus, whose grandfather beheaded John the Baptist, and whose father martyred the Apostle James. And I find myself fortunate standing before you, King Agrippa. Then he proceeds with his story of how he, why he's so into Christianity. This is Paul's testimony. I too was convinced I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priest. I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So you can't get any more clear than this. This guy hated Christ and he hated the values of the Christian faith that was spreading throughout the Roman Empire. But all of that changed in one afternoon. On one of those occasions, I was going to Damascus. And as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, the Lord replied. On this day, the Apostle Paul saw the risen Christ and the reigning King of the universe, and on this day, he was saved. Jesus Christ, the power of God, entered his life. If there was ever one person that you would say, they will never become a Christian. It's him. And now he's professing his faith in Christ. Last Sunday, probably didn't dawn on you, but at that door, you got greeted by a man. His, I think his birthday, I think he turned 34 yesterday. And basically, according to his own testimony, has been out of church for 33 years. Been with us less than a year. <sighs> It said that there was a time in his life, for most of his life, he mocked the church and mocked church members. And now he's gladly holding the door open so church members can come in here and worship. Jesus Christ can change anybody. Well, almost immediately when Paul received the gift of salvation, Jesus gave him his mission, his calling. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from, it's crucial, very important, darkness to light, from darkness to light, and from power of Satan to the power of God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision. I love the way that Paul says exactly what Jesus called him to do, to testify in such a way that people leave, they go, they're leaving the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. They're leaving the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. In other words, Paul is saying, on the day this happened to him, he said, he didn't say, 
I was sitting in church one day and I heard a very emotional music, a song. It just got all over me and I thought, I need to make my life better. No. He saw someone's face that radiated with a brightness that was greater than the radiance of the sun. And it caused him to change his allegiances from darkness to light and from Satan to God. And he would spend the rest of his life shining the light of God into the darkness. That was his call. And I want to tell you, this is the most exciting call in the world and the most dangerous call in the world. Cost Paul a lot of things, a lot of hardships from prison to death. And the reason it's so hard is because you're turning on the gospel light to people who are living in dark. I mean, I don't know how many of you have ever had the privilege of being a parent and walking into your child's room when you're trying to get them to get up. And maybe you felt like it was time to get up because now it's one in the afternoon and you, you turn on the light. Normally the first words that come, at least in, from my daughter's mouth growing up, was not, thank you, daddy. <laughs> I was really struggling to get up. No, it's more, it's, it's sounds that have never been made by humans. Because <laughs> they don't want to leave the, the dark. So whenever we open the Bible and let the glory of God spill out, the initial reaction of people who are living in the dark is, the initial reaction is not positive. There would have been plenty of people who would advise Paul to alter his message. But Paul knew that if you alter the message, you alter God. And then you produce an idol that's not God. And it's so tempting to make God tiny and to make him trendy. So the world will not be offended. But I want to tell you the only way that someone ever gets saved is they are first offended by the cross. Offense comes and then salvation and probably the greatest era of the church in the past 20 years is that we have been seduced by cool. We long for the culture to think that we're cool. And cool can get a lot of people to like you. But for me, I'm thinking how tragic it would be is if the result of my 34, 35 years of ministry is that people were really into me and missed God. Preaching the gospel is the most loving thing we can ever do because truth is the only path to God who forgives sin and grants sinners a place at his table. And the church is going to always be tempted to develop clever strategies and flattering statements so a hardened culture might believe and yet the methodology of Paul said, no, it's just the opposite direction than what you're thinking in clever strategies. He says, the weapons we fight with are not like the strategies of the world. For the world, everything is a marketing thing. Do you know that 50% of most everything you buy is somewhere bound up in marketing? It's the package. The attractiveness of the package is what makes you make that decision to buy. It's unbelievable how much money is spent on seeing if this package, because so many of the products are about the same, if the marketing will make you buy it. If you've ever watched any show, I think the social media, I forgot what the, the social, what was the thing on 
Facebook and all that. What's it called? The social network. If you've watched the social network and see how many algorithms Facebook runs, tens of thousands every second, as they see you click on something that you might want, well, it's all she wrote there because then the algorithms are run to make you want things that you thought you never would want, but advertisers want you to want. So we don't use the world's methods because we're not after the world's goals. The world wants you to become more addicted. God wants you to become more free of all the tyrannies that keep you from the life that he has planned for you from before your birth. Look what God's weapons do. On the contrary, this is in contrast to the world. Our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Again, our goal of church is not just to come and get people to enjoy 90 minutes. That's not the goal for today. It's not a hard thing to do. Right coffee, lights, music, you can get people to come for 90 minutes. Paul said, I want to go in and demolish the strongholds of the world. The word demolish is a, is a strong word. It means to tear down, uh, to pull down, maybe to make something extinct. But it's also... It's also a very positive word from the Greek word katharizo, which means to cleanse. So what happens is we demolish demonic strongholds through the cleansing power of Jesus Christ preached through the gospel. That's how strongholds go away. He cleanses. Preaching of him cleanses. Paul says the place where this holy cleansing takes place is Stronghold, which in the Greek means a military fortress. These are, these, are, these are strong places that have now are very deep in our society. But we want to demolish them so that the, the captives they are holding can be set free. We don't want people to just come to the building for a few minutes on Sunday. We want them to change residences from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of God. And that's not going to be possible. It's not going to be possible if we rely on clever strategies and flattering words. Because people, listen, for somebody to enter the kingdom of God, they have to repent of false beliefs. False values. That's humbling. That's offensive. I have been believing the wrong thing, relying on the wrong thing, headed in the wrong direction. I have the wrong priorities. That's repentance. And anyone that doesn't say that has never been saved. And no human strategy will ever produce that. Well, how does that work? Verse 4, on the contrary, our, our, our strategies... They have divine power to, to produce this kind of result. Divine power. Oh, where do you get divine power? From God. Divine, God power. You, 
You walk with him. You obey him. You listen to him. And then you do what he says. And he grants you power to accomplish this impossible mission. But I'm talking, when you're talking about walking with God, we're not talking about this on and off relationship with him. Look what Paul says. We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That's where the power of God comes from. Taking every thought and letting Christ rule over that thought. That's where the power of God is. That's upon whom the power of God is released for this mission. But our culture is so messed up right now that you need to know when you go to the darkness with this mission, there's going to be some major resistance because culture is screaming louder than ever now, leave us alone. That's the message. We see this in one obstinate man that Jesus came in contact with in Mark 5. An obstinate is an understatement. Mark 5, 1, that they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the, in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. I've only met one demon-possessed person like this in my life. We were at a baptism in India and many people were confessing Christ and we were in the middle of, we were in the middle of, of a Hindu area and a young woman became possessed by an evil spirit, and it was the most radical transformation of a human body I had ever seen. And many, many people there it took to restrain her until many prayers were made over her and the demon left. No one had ever been able to restrain this man who lived in the graveyard, but that was about to change. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. So now a demon through this man's lips is talking to Jesus. And he's telling him, What business is it of yours of what I'm doing in this man's body? Why have you come here? Why have you come into my territory? This man is mine. Why have you come? Before Jesus heals this man, he does ask him an interesting question to identify exactly who he's talking with. Then Jesus said, what is your name? He's not talking to the man. He's talking to the demon. My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. If you think our nation feels different than it ever has, it's because demonic powers are so much more at work than they have been in recent decades. If you would have listened this week to a discussion on Capitol Hill between a senator and someone who was a candidate in the health services department, it is the most perverse thing I've ever heard in my life. I won't even dirty the hour up by mentioning anything. You could just go back and, and watch that conversation. But when you watch it, you will say, Legion. Many demons were in that room 
that day. And I am grateful that there is a God like the Apostle Paul and like he's done with me can save that woman's life. But she needs Christ. But despite the number of demons that were in that man's body, Jesus did in fact deliver him as recorded by another gospel. Luke 8, 35, the people, the town people from that village went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Oh, that's just beautiful. And that's what love does. It walks into the domain of darkness with the light of Christ, knowing there will be resistance, but knowing it's worth it when lives are saved from the grip of evil. Now, back to the question asked by the demon. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son? So you got a demon that's screaming, as culture is now screaming, what business is it of yours, church, what we do? It's the most intimidating question you'll ever be asked by culture. What business is it of yours, what we do in culture? If you don't know the answer to that, you're not even battling yet. And, you, and the moment you ba- do battle, you will fall out of that if you don't know the answer. What business is it of yours to confront culture, the darkness of culture with the light of Christ? Here's the answer. John 17, 18 Jesus speaking to the disciples on the night before he was crucified, as the Father has sent me into culture, I have sent you into culture. If you don't know that, that you've been sent into the world, at the same prayer, says, I'm not asking God for you to take them out of the world. Into the world. And why did Jesus come into the world? Why was he in the world? Acts 10, 38 says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. You've been sent into the world like Christ was sent into the world to confront our culture. And so no matter how strong the voices are that tell us to quit, The only permission you need to speak is the command of Christ and the will of God. And there are models of that throughout Christian history. Apart from the Apostle Paul, probably no more courageous voice to speak into culture. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we just celebrated his birthday February 4th. It's important every year just sort of stop on February 4th and say, God, thank you for the rare gift of Bonhoeffer to the church. He would be 115. Today's dating. Two days after Hitler rose to power, this would be February 1st, 1933, Bonhoeffer, a German Lutheran theologian and pastor, gave a speech on radio directly aimed at Adolf Hitler. And he warned of the country's unhealthy allegiance to the Fuhrer, especially among young people. And he told the young people, never surrender your allegiance to a human leader, but always and ultimately only to God. 
In the radio speech made by Bonhoeffer, he said to the Fuhrer, leadership is a gift from God and therefore all leaders must be accountable to God. And if a leader is not accountable to God, if he believes he's accountable to no one, he's a dangerous leader. 11 million deaths later, Bonhoeffer proved his words proved right. 11 million deaths. When a society no longer believes it is accountable to a transcendent standard of righteousness, that society will become a barbaric society, will destroy many on the way to destroying itself. You know, one interesting fact about Bonhoeffer's speech that night in 1933, just as he was about to uh, arrive at the crescendo call of allegiance to God, the radio station lost its power. And there were thousands of German families crowded around their radio to, hear, uh, radio to hear Bonhoeffer speak that night, and they never heard his concluding, great concluding remarks. And it's a mystery to this day what happened, why his speech was cut off. The majority of the church in Bonhoeffer's day were silent as Hitler rose to power. Either they didn't take time to look or they were afraid to speak. In fact, in 1933, the National Assembly of the German Protestant Church endorsed the Nazi party. They unified into a new organization called officially the German Evangelical Church. That was their official title. The colloquial unofficial title among the people was, it was called the Reich Church after the Third Reich. They were Hitler's church. So knowing that the church had been infiltrated by the state, Bonhoeffer formed his own church. It was called the Confessing Church. And the common unifying principle that bound them all together was called the Barman Declaration. It was made of six theses. And all of the theses, each one of them looked like this. There would be a scripture posted. And then there would be uh, an explanation, and application of how that scripture applies to our life as believers. Then there was a rejection of those things that would prevent obedience to the scripture. I'll just share with you an example. This would be thesis number three. It came from Ephesians 4, 15, and 16, which talks about it is the will of God to fill all of the world with his influence through the church. Then, this is the application of that. As the church of pardoned sinners, it has to testify in the midst of a sinful world with its faith and with its obedience. So that's the principle of Ephesians 4. We witness, pardoned sinners, we witness through our lives and our words. Now here's the, the negative part. I told you there was a negative part of every Barman Declaration thesis. We reject... The false doctrine that the church is permitted to relinquish its teaching because of changes in prevailing ideological and political convictions. In other words, no voice turns us from the mission that Christ has called us to. Bonhoeffer had come to a place in his life when he realized there was only really ultimately one person in the audience. God. In 1935, Bonhoeffer established an illegal seminary to train young pastors because the rest of the pastors had caved into the new German church. And here he taught them how to be a disciple of Christ, how to hear God, how to know God, how to obey God. 
And those lectures eventually became a book called The Cost of Discipleship. The Gestapo eventually shut down the seminary. Bonhoeffer and his uh, men went to all the farmland and they hid and tried to meet. But eventually in 1939, the Nazis banned Bonhoeffer from preaching publicly. Knowing that he couldn't be a part of Hitler's move to aggressively through war take over Europe, he left Europe in 1939, sailed to the United States, but soon realized this was not the right move for his life. He moved back to Germany to find out, God, what do you want me to do? And he was bound by, with several men and in a plan to assassinate Adolf Hitler, which, of course, failed with the, the failed Valkyrie plot. I don't say all this to recommend that anybody become involved in an assassination plot, but I am saying all this that you need to ground your assurance that is so, you're so sure that you are going to live forever with Jesus Christ that you do not fear anything on earth, including death. Twelve years before Bonhoeffer died, he wrote a paper on death in which he said, Death would be a horrible thing were it not faith in Christ, which makes it a glorious thing because it removes us from the final barrier to God. Which is exactly what the imprisoned and soon-to-be-killed Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. If you're going to live the kind of faith that Bonhoeffer did and Paul did, you got to have that assurance that Jesus is going to award me for my stand in my culture. And if you don't believe that, you won't stand. If you believe that all the, all, you got to get all your rewards now, and the, the rewards later aren't worth it. You won't stand. But your faith means nothing, nothing if you do not act. Your faith means nothing if you do not speak, especially when you're afraid and society says be afraid to speak. Every generation of, of Christians at some point has felt like the world is the darkest time in the world. We feel that way now. But it's always been dark. It's always been dark. And from the first century, the starting place has always been the same place. And we'll conclude on this. This is where we start. 1 Timothy 2, 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all those in authority. That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. And pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it is our privilege and our joy right now to come to you and to ask for your help. Lord, the mission that you're sending us out to, to invite people to change residences from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. It is an absolutely impossible mission unless you persuade and unless you produce faith. Father, we have no hope except that the prayers of the people of God 
Till the soil of hard hearts. Shine the light on dark lives. And shine the light on the radiant face of Jesus Christ and his massive heart that wants to save the world. So we do pray for kings and all those in authority. Lord, we pray that for all those who are leading our country now in places that you have granted in high positions and positions of great influence, we pray that all of them would know Christ. Pray that, Lord, any who belong to the kingdom of darkness would be transferred to the kingdom of light. Lord, that somebody using the word of God would turn the light on and bring them from darkness to light and from Satan to God. We pray for all Lord, we pray for national leaders. We pray for county leaders. We pray for city leaders. We pray for school leaders and business leaders. We pray for heads of homes that all would come to Christ, that his life would infuse their body, and therefore his values would affect their decisions, affect children and babies, affect society and love and peace true peace, true unity would be supernaturally birthed through the gospel witness of these who now are saved. So we pray for all and we ask for all, those close on our heart, those that are we're thinking about right now, please, oh God, you desire that they be saved. We're asking you to save them. In Christ's name, Christ's name I pray. Amen.